He gave up. <laughs> we want to greet all of you that are here for the first time. If this is your first time here, would you lift your hand up real high, please? We don't want to embarrass you or anything. We just want to get you a little visitor packet. Please keep your hand up. Ralph is making his way to the front, and there's a packet there. We want you to open it up, and please take it home and read it. But uh, inside right now, there's a little white piece of paper. It's going to give us some information about you, so we can put you on our mailing list and hound you for the rest of your life, and that's not true. We just want to drop you a note of thanks for being here. And if you would, please, we're going to invite you to a visitor dessert. You're free to say no, of course, but we can't invite you unless we have your address. So please uh, do that for us. Promise we're not going to come knocking on your door, anything like that. Uh, we want to show you some hospitality as well. We have an offering box right here and an offering box right out the door. All visitors, please put in your life savings on your way out the door. Actually, just put that little piece of paper. We don't want anything else from you. Okay, no money, nothing like that. You're a guest here. Just pop that little piece of paper in there if you would. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. And incidentally, there's one thing I would pray for you who are here for the first time, and that's that you would sense the love and the peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to continue our study of this feeding of the 5,000. It's a marvelous time we've had. But I want to begin by reading for you a quote from My Utmost for His Highest, from Oswald Chambers, in which he wrote on the baffling call of God. He quoted Luke chapter 18, the passage that talked about Jesus' death and how Jesus shared that he was going to die with his disciples and how that passage caused confusion for the disciples. It was hard for them to understand. How can this one who loves us so much, how can this one who has done so much and, and speaks with such truth be crucified? And it really baffled them. And Chambers then commented on those verses by saying this, Jesus Christ called his disciples to see him put to death. He led every one of them to the place where their hearts were broken. I hope you heard that. Jesus did this to them. He called them to watch him die. He called them to where their hearts would be heavy with brokenness. Jesus Christ's life was an absolute failure from every standpoint but God's. But what seemed failure from man's standpoint was a tremendous triumph from God's because God's purpose is not man's purpose. The call of God that baffles us comes to our lives also. Now, it cannot be stated definitely what the call of God is to because his call is to be in comradeship with himself for his own purposes. And the test for you and I is to believe that God knows what he is after. What's he saying? He's saying this, beloved, that you and I can never in our lives positively say, this is God's call upon my life. Because his call is not so much to a task. Scripture is very clear. His call is for you and I to go to Him. 
and we let him lead us step by step. The things that happen to us then do not happen by chance. They happen entirely in the decree of God as God is working out His purpose in our lives. If we are in communion with Him and recognize that He is taking us into this His purpose, then we shall no longer try to find out what His purposes are. As we go on in the Christian life, it gets simpler because we are less inclined to say, Why? Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? Because we will come to realize that behind this whole issue lies the compelling hand of God. In other words, it will be enough for us to know simply that He's bringing us to Himself. A Christian, then, is one who trusts the wits and the wisdom of God and not his own wits. Especially since most of us are half-wit. That's my own addition, I'm sorry. But I hope you understand the truth. You and I are finite beings. You and I have finite understanding. You and I look with the eyes that are filtered through a physical world in which we live. And we see today. And when the baffling call of God comes into our lives, we feel today. And it is very difficult for you and I in the midst of that baffling to see into the future and the good that will come out of what we're experiencing today. Right? And so it becomes very hard for us to experience today. We will often find ourselves complaining. And we'll find ourselves prone to ask why. Beloved, here it is. Nothing happens to us apart from God's will, knowledge, and purpose. Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens to us apart from God's will, knowledge, and purpose. Now, because of our limited understanding, when things do happen to us, sometimes we will have confusion. Sometimes we will struggle. Sometimes we will be frustrated. It is hard for us to see the ultimate purpose that God is calling us to. And in that frustration, what many of us will try to do is we will try to find an answer for what we're experiencing. And that's an easy trap to fall into. And what I would share with you is this. The goal is not for you and I to find an answer. The goal in the baffling calls of God that He brings our way is for you and I to find Him. Because He is more than sufficient in whatever circumstance you and I find ourselves in. That is the only way that you and I can understand the words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So many, many people have misunderstood that passage. I'm reminded of back in the 1970s, the University of Southern California had a swim team that was very good that year. And, and they were competing against the University of Illinois. And the story came out 
publicly before those that big meet between them for the national championship that there were Christians on the University of Illinois team. And one dear brother came into the locker room that day. I've got it. I've got it. I found the verse for us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We'll claim that and we'll go out and we'll win. Strangely, in the University of Southern California locker room, guess what their verse was? (laughs) Beloved, somebody's going to lose. And if that is your understanding of that verse, you will be headed for much frustration and much disappointment. That is not what the verse is teaching, that you and I can claim Christ and go do whatever we want to do and be successful. What that verse is saying is that in whatever circumstance you find yourself, you will be successful if you are looking to Christ to be the strength and the provision for whatever it is you're going through. And that is the ultimate success. That's what enabled the the Apostle Paul to sing after being beaten in Philippi. And that's what Paul meant in Philippians 4. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I can be rich. I can be poor. I can be married. I can be single. I can have a job. I can have no job. Whatever. If I have Christ, I triumph. You see, what this means then, beloved, is this. That Jesus wants to be not only the source of our life, but He wants to be the sustenance of our life. And so many, many, many brothers and sisters I see in the family of God don't understand this. We have such a limited understanding of Christianity. We think that God is on an agenda of getting us into the kingdom. And that is a good agenda. I mean, I want to be in the kingdom. (laughs) Don't you? But that is only half the agenda of God. God wants to put the kingdom in a man. And He doesn't just want you to look to Him and say, I have gained heaven through Jesus Christ. And now I'll slug it out for the rest of my life until I get to heaven. That's not the issue. That is not biblical Christianity. For Jesus himself said, without me you can do nothing. I am the vine that brings life, but you, dear branches, must choose to abide in me. See, Jesus wants to be our sustenance, not just our salvation. And so please hear me when I say this. That means that our God is going to bring whatever is necessary into our lives to bring us to the point where we will abide in Him. Even if it causes us frustration, confusion, pain, disappointment, He has a far greater agenda than our comfort. And that means then that when you and I experience the baffling call of God in our lives, it may be the very first step to the only real success we've ever had in our Christianity. Because for the first time, maybe, 
we'll depend on Him like we never depended on Him before. And then we will find Him to be the vine. We'll find Him to be all that He promised to be to us. That is what the disciples are learning in John chapter 6. And I pray, I pray so hard, beloved, that you would learn that as well. In fact, I want us to stand as a people today and let's ask our Father to teach us. Our Father, we unite our hearts before you as a people. We lift our eyes up to you as you are the only source of life there is. You are creator, you are sustainer. Life is found in no other. And our heart's prayer today is that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to learn the truths that are contained in this passage in John chapter 6. Because as we have gone through these truths, we have seen that even the men that were there before you did not learn them. Even those who saw, even those who participated did not learn. And that is the sad, sad state of humanity. That having been separated from you, we cannot understand the things of God unless you teach us. So we cast ourselves in dependence upon you. And we say, Abba, Father, teach your children. And we'll thank you in his wonderful name. And all the saints of God would say, Amen. John chapter 6. We have seen over the last several weeks that Jesus has been methodically emptying his disciples and we will put it this way, they have now, we would hope be, prepared for the provision of God. That sufficiently emptied, they're now ready to be filled. At least that's what we would hope. I'll let you in on it. <laughs> that's not what we're going to see. But our Jesus is going to work anyway. And I would say we ought to hear a loud amen because none of us are really thriving on being emptied. But he'll fill us anyway and empty us anyway. Amen? Amen. Okay. What have we seen? Well, we've seen this. That Jesus by now is in Galilee. He has attracted a huge crowd around him. Such a big crowd that the disciples and he cannot even have time to eat. Let alone minister one to another. So he takes the disciples and he heads across the Sea of Galilee to get some silent, quiet time with his disciples up on the mountain. But the crowd is locked into a good thing and they're not going to let him go. So they travel by foot up and around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has had some time of solitude, but he sees this huge crowd coming, so he turns to Philip and he says, Hey, Philip, how much does it cost to feed these people? And then he goes down there and heals those people and teaches them of the kingdom all day long until it's growing dark and the people are hungry. And we said we had a very perplexed Philip because Philip looked inward. He looked to his own resources. Please own this. God could have fed these people. Jesus could have snapped his finger and said, food from heaven. 
and 30,000 bagels and kefilte fish were to come falling out of the sky. We are in Palestine. Right? Okay. But he chose not to. Philip, this is your baby. I'm putting it in your lap. You feed him. That's a baffling call, beloved. How do you feed a crowd of thirty to 40,000 people when you're, you have no money? So we had a very perplexed Philip, and God stripped him of his own resources. Towards the end of the day, we looked, secondly, and we saw the despairing disciples. Philip shared his woe. We as humanity do that. Now we had a whole group of people coming to the Master. And their method of coping was looking earthward, looking to escape, to avoid the issue. They handled the baffling call the way a lot of us do. Let's just get it out of our mind. Let's just pretend it's not here. Send these people away, Lord. We don't want to deal with it. Jesus said, no. You feed them. And so last week, we saw the only third alternative, and that's what we call the dense disciples. There's no other way to put it. (laughs) They're still offering to feed them. So Jesus says, you have the resources. Go check it out. And he sent them amongst the crowd. And all they could find, as they looked outward to the crowd's resources, was five little biscuits and two little fish. A little boy's snack. How did he alone have food? Well, you remember, they've been there all day long. Listening to Jesus teach and having him heal them. And the little boy, who knows, maybe as little boys are, they get to play and then forget to eat. In any event, it looks like they have now been sufficiently emptied. It looks like they are now ready to be filled. They have been stripped of every resource they've got. They can't look to their own resources. They can't look to other people's resources. They can't send them away. Jesus won't let them do it. And they're now empty. That is the call of God. That is right where Jesus wanted them. He wanted them weak. That is such a hard, hard message for you and I to learn. Because we were birthed under the economy of Adam. And Adam brought into the lie, you shall be as God. And God is omnipotent. And so we, therefore, have this belief system ingrained into us from Father Adam that we've got to be strong. You were never created to be strong. You were created to be dependent upon the one who is. I see this as a parent as I work with my own babies. I've got children that are so hard on themselves. They will not let themselves fail. When they do fail, they beat themselves up. And they're not receiving that condemnation from mom and dad. Because mom and dad were raised under that condemnation. And mom and dad have said the cycle stops here. So where is this condemnation coming from? From within them. And we have to work on them and say, you were never created to be perfect. You were never created to be right. You are created to be dependent upon the one who knows all things. 
allow yourself to be weak. That's the economy of God. God's strength will be manifested in our what? Weakness. It's hard for the pride of man, though, to receive that message. We don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. But you and I ought to own that, beloved. As the words of the Apostle Paul and truer words were never spoken, God's power will be manifest in our weakness. And so as Jack Taylor says, when someone comes up to you with that incredible inquiry of today, Hi, how are you? We ought to say, weak, thank you, very weak. (laughs) Maybe that will open the door for us to be able to dialogue with them on the truths of the economy of the new covenant. And this is God's agenda to make you weak. So He will allow into your life baffling calls, impossible circumstances to force you to run to Him. Are the disciples ready to do that? Are they ready to run to Him? You see... If he told them, you feed them, you have the resources, then obviously they can do it. But where was their resource? Their resource was Jesus himself. But incredibly, not one of them looked to him. We'll put it this way, when our resources are exhausted, his resources can now be exhibited. He will empty us of other things so that He can be our everything. Or this way. But this is what they tried to do. They ran to and fro trying to find an answer. Jesus didn't want them to find an answer. He wanted them to find Him. And He would be their answer. Well, beloved, think about this with me. They've been emptied of their own resources... They've been emptied of the crowd's resources. They're in a desert place. There's no food to be bought. It's dark. They themselves have admitted it's an impossible circumstance. So they say, send them away. And Jesus says, no. Now, wouldn't you consider them sufficiently emptied? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think they'd be at the point where they would say, Master, you've got to do it because we can't? Well, let's look to Luke chapter 9 and see if that's in fact what they do. Luke chapter 9. When the day, verse 12, began to wear away, they came the twelve to him and said, Send them away. Get rid of this problem. We're in a desert place, you know, Lord. But he said unto them, Give them to eat. Now notice the next phrase. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes. So this tells us that this is already occurring now after they have gone and scoured the crowd. Right? And you've got to love their answer. We have no more than five loaves and two fishes. But we'll go and buy food for all of them. <laughs> Do you see the incredible audacity of the pride of man here? They have already admitted it's an impossible circumstance, but what are they saying? We'll keep on trying. Oh, dear beloved. 
the incredible pride of man. They cannot bring themselves to admit they can't. They are opting for an answer that is no answer. I'll put it this way. They are refusing to look to Jesus, but praise His name, beloved. They are going to be seen by Him. They won't look to Jesus, but praise God, He's going to look to them. And He's going to bring them to a point where they will see that He is the answer. Let's go back to John 6 and we'll see what He does. John chapter 6. Jesus looks at this whole scenario and with His great grace and His great compassion, He now takes control. Apparently, our Lord has realized that they're just not going to allow themselves to be emptied. They're still going to keep on trying. So he takes over the situation and he now begins to speak. Up to this time, the disciples have been the ones doing a lot of speaking, but now he himself is going to speak. Notice John 6, verse 10. Jesus said, Make the men sit down. He doesn't say much. But he says, make the men sit down. Now, what do you suppose is running through the disciples' minds about now? What do they want to do with this crowd? Send them away. What does Jesus say to do with the crowd? Have them sit down. You ever have that happen where God doesn't listen to what you tell him to do? You ever have that happen? Yeah. What's going through their minds about now? When is he ever going to listen to us? Can you believe it? We can't feed these people. Now he's having them sit down. We're going to sit here all night long hungry looking at each other. Oh, but there's more here. Go over to Luke chapter 9. We get some more insight. Luke 9, verse 14. There were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Make them sit down... And you can stop right there. You might want to circle that word, sit down. Luke used a different word. And guess what word this is? You've got to love this. Lie down. Or recline. Recline. Those of you who have studied uh, biblical history know something about this word. This is the posture that people took when they were going to what? Eat. You see, in the East, a meal was a very unhurried time of fellowship where you enjoyed each other's company and the provision of God, and there was much conversation, and so it was a relaxing time, very unlike our fast food, go get them, hurry, hustle, bustle days today, right? In those days, it was sit down, recline, and have a wonderful feast. Can you imagine what's going through the disciples' minds now? He's not only having them sit down, He's having them get ready for a meal that's never going to come about. How could he do this to us? There's going to be a riot. He's telling them they're going to eat and then they're not going to get to eat. They're going to kill us. They're going to stampede. This isn't very smart, Lord. Look a little further. Look what else he tells them in verse 14. He tells them to sit down in company of 
fifties. Why is that significant? Have these men sit down in groups of fifty. Why? Did you know this was solely for the disciples' benefit? You say, you put yourself there. You're one of the twelve. And Jesus says he's going to feed this crowd. Now you know it's a big crowd. Right? That's hard enough as it is. But now by breaking them up into fifties, what can the disciples do? Oh, thank you. Count them. Let's see, that's 50, 100, 150, 5,000 men? See, now you know how big the crowd is. <laughs> With all the women, and t- 30, 40,000? This is what Jesus has done. He's really going after them. Now look closely at that verse. I've got a real tremendous insight for you, though. There are 5,000 men, and he said, make them sit down. Please note that it's biblical for the men to eat first. And be served. This is what we do in our household. It works very well. Janet's not here to answer. That's not true. But you might want to try it. No. Now I want you to notice something else here. Do you realize that Jesus doesn't say anything other than give the command? How would you feel about that? I mean, I, I tried to put myself there. If Jesus had said something like this to me, all right, guys, come here. I'm going to work a miracle. I'm going to feed every one of them so full they're ready to pop. Go sit them down in 50s. How would you have acted? All right. Right? You've seen him turn water into wine, raise the dead, heal the sick. Yeah. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, sit them down in 50s and make them lay down. See that? He didn't give them one clue about what he was going to do. He is forcing them to what? Trust him. And they did it. You've got to admire their trust. I mean, you can't admire their intellectual ability, but you've got to admire their trust. And now Jesus works. Look at it. Go back to John 6. We'll read that whole account because that's the passage we started in. Let's read the account and see what happens. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, the disciples of them that were sitting down, likewise the fishes as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Then they gathered them together, filled twelve baskets with the fragments, and the five barley loaves, which remains over and above what they had eaten. And those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that you command of the world. And a passage. Did you see that? I mean, it's almost nonchalant. And Jesus sat down, part of the bread, pushed the fish, said, go among the crowd, pick up twelve baskets left over, everybody's full. That's profit. Doesn't that bug you? How would that have read if a man had written this book? How would it have read? Yeah, I, I just saw your face. <laughs> would you do that face to everybody? No? <laughs> You gotta be careful what you do in this assembly. She she goes like this. <laughs> right? Isn't that how men would have written it? Man, you should have been there. Jesus broke the bread and he did this and he did that and the bread Wow. That's not how God does it. God just says, Hey, this is what I did. And he leaves you to wrestle with the fact. In fact, I love what one writer said. I want to share this with you. There's one guy commenting on this. This is great. The story of the miracle, he says. You can tell a scholar wrote this. 
usually very dull and boring. The story of the miracle is simplicity itself. We'll read it like one of them. And it's so graphically told that comment is hardly necessary. Just read it and let it speak for itself. Don't comment on it. Just let it be. (laughs) That's his opinion. We're going to (laughs) comment. We're going to comment a lot. Let's look at this. Let's, Let's take the scenario and let's have some fun. Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. What do you mean he gave thanks? Was, is this a magic formula to make it multiply? Man, wouldn't you like to know that magic formula, right? No, this is not a magic formula. This is just the will of, of man surrendered before God, right? Jesus is the God-man. He's in perfect dependence on the Father. Father, you've got to pull this off. We can't. That's all he's saying. He blessed the food. He broke the bed. He gave it to his disciples. That's what we're told. The Luke passage, Luke 9, we can't have time to turn there, says he broke and gave, broke and gave, broke and gave. In other words, it was just here. And the disciples then took the food into the crowd. Don't you wonder how he pulled that off? Think about this with me. Here's a biscuit. Break it in half. And the biscuit never runs out. I mean, what happened? They don't tell us. Did the bis- I th- you know what I think? I think the biscuit just went and grew right back there. Really? Just whoop, 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 there it is. You know, it's just... You got the idea? Broken gave, broken gave, broken gave. And then you go to the Mark 6 passage and it's fascinating. There it tells us he divided the fish. Why did he do that? Good. Fish don't break very well. <laughs> right? So you got to divide them. And so he divides them, and there's another one. And he just keeps dividing, and the fish never runs out. Isn't that incredible? Here's two for you, two for you. John 6 then tells us they were filled. Who was filled? Well, let's go to the Luke passage, 917. What's it tell us? They all were filled. In English, what does that mean? Bart, what's all mean? Oh, good. John, what does Greek mean? When it says all. All. That's good. Yeah. What does it mean in the Hebrew, Donnie? All. But what does it mean when they say they all were filled? They all were filled. That's right. But here's a funny one. This is fascinating. In Luke 9, John uses a word, a very simple word, filled. It just means you filled. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke use a different word. And the word is cortidzane. Say so what that means. Well, cortizane is a very technical word. And it means to feed an animal, watch this, to capacity. So let's give it a modern English translation. And they pigged out. See? They stuffed themselves. They gorged. They went to an all-you-can-eat food bar. And they did just that. They pigged out until they were busting at the seams. Isn't that awesome? Nobody was left out. Now here's the key. You and I must do this right now. You and I must contrast what the disciples said with what Jesus did. Did you hear that? What the disciples speak, because it's so easy to speak, right? With what God does. Fact. Watch it. What have they said? Uh, Lord, 
We can't give them a snack. Did you hear that? Well, we don't even have enough money to give them a snack. But we'll try to give them a snack. Lord, we'll, we'll really try to give them a snack. That's the nature of man. You and I live in a physical realm. And you and I tend to be governed by a physical realm. Put your hand on a hot burner, you get burned. Throw a coin up in the air, the coin's going to come down. Cut yourself with a knife, you will bleed. Get the idea? We live in a physical realm. And so you and I tend to think how? Physically. We tend to think earthy. And so when a baffling call comes into our life that's an impossible circumstance, you and I are going to try to solve it how? With earthly what? Resources. And so what happens is if we do look to God at all, we hold up our little plate and we say, Crumbs, God? And you and I have got to put in our minds and repent. Did you hear that? Repent. I mean, the church has really messed up this word repent. We had a little homework assignment in our Tuesday group. We had them go around and ask all their Christian friends, what does repent mean? What does repent mean? You know what the answer came back? 95 some odd percent of the time. Change what you do. That's not repent. The Greek word is metanoia and it means change the way you think. Change your mind. You and I need to quit thinking earthy and begin to think spiritually because we have a God who when we hold up our little plate to Him and say, crumbs God, He says, crumbs nothing. I want to fill you, Ephesians 3.19, with the fullness of my own being. Did you hear that? You're a little finite critter, Chris. You're a little finite critter. And God wants to fill you with His infinite self. You really want to ask for crumbs? I want to fill you with a love that overflows. Infinite love, Ephesians 3 says, which is so awesome it cannot be comprehended. I want to fill you with a joy that will make you full. I want to fill you with a peace that surpasses understanding, Floyd. A peace that you can't even understand it. In the midst of an impossible circumstance, you can rest. Because you have the peace of God. Crumbs? It's not the way our God operates, gang. It's not the way He operates. He wants to fill you with the fullness of Himself. And you know, you'd think the disciples would have learned this because they'd been around Him for a long time. They've seen Him do all kinds of miracles. I think this is one of the biggest issues that you and I face in our Christian life. It's right here. Renewing our minds from an earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. We tend to see ourselves through earth's eyes instead of through God's. We see our circumstances through earth's eyes instead of through God's. It's the biggest problem we face. So Jesus really drives this home. 
If you look at the passage in John 6, he tells them to pick up the leftovers. Why? Where do you think that initiates? Are they going to come up with this in their minds? No. Jesus initiates this. You go into the crowd and pick up the leftovers. He knows that their, their plan of life is not normally to run to God. So he forces them to do this. He forces them to go through the crowd. When they go through the crowd, what do they come up with? Rapid fire question and answer here. Little exam time. Ready? How much did they get? Twelve baskets. How many disciples are there? Twelve disciples. So they each get a basket. How much is a basket? He's going to feed them too? Yes. With how much? A basket. How much is a basket? That's a lot of food. Would you say that that is more than they need? Would that be more than they need? Yeah. What do you suppose they're going to do with it? There you go. They're going to give back to him out of their abundance when they were the ones who had nothing. Oh, I get goosebumps. I start thinking of this. They had what? Nothing. Now, they're going to give back to him out of more than they need because he provided it for them. And now they're going to give it back to him. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's our God. That is our Jesus. And did you notice, please, that there is no hint of punishment? There is no rebuke. Nowhere in this passage does Jesus say, where's your faith? Why didn't you trust me? What's wrong with you? How long do I have to be with you until you start to look to me? He doesn't do any of that. In his great grace, he simply leads them to an understanding that when a baffling call comes into your life, there is only one solution and that is him. And when you have Him, you will have all that you need. And that's awesome. And with that, you and I are left to our imagination. As these twelve men sit around the table, sharing with Him out of their abundance, when just a few minutes earlier they had nothing. Now, I have a question for you. And that is this. Don't you wonder what was going on with those twelve men? when they sat around the table with their Lord and gave to Him out of their full baskets now when just a little bit earlier they were struggling? Let's put this home. Let's bring it real close to home. The baffling calls of God have come into your life. What have you done? Have you looked at your own resources and cried out, God, what are you doing? I can't handle this. Have you done that? Have you sought avoidance and escape by running out of a marriage or running out of a job or running to a bottle or running to a pill or running into the arms of another for a comfort when you never should have been in their arms? This is what we do. That's what we do. We do the very same thing that these men have done. And so what would the conversation be, people? 
May I suggest a few? As one who has run helter-skelter in the midst of baffling circumstances, maybe you'll recognize a few of them. Oh, Father, I am so sorry I didn't look to you. I'm so sorry I went running off in my, in my fear and in my anger and acted like I don't even know you. Father, I should have known that you would have acted. I should have known you would provide. But as most often is the case, I didn't look to you. Father, please forgive me for my lack of faith. Or maybe you'll say something like this. Thank you, Father, that you love me enough to teach me even the lessons I don't want to learn. Thank you that you're making me conform to the image of Christ, even though that hurts. Thank you that you put me in impossible circumstances so that you will force me to look to you, because I just don't normally do that. Thank you that you love me that much. I hope next time maybe I'll do a little better. You ever find yourself saying things like that? To be honest with you, there are so many lessons in this passage, we cannot touch them all. So in two weeks, what we're going to do is we're just going to come together and I'm just going to share with you some application over this last five weeks. No teaching, just varying applications that you and I can learn from this passage. But today I do want to leave you with one application and that application is very clear. I hope you see it. Before these men could be filled, they had to be emptied. Before they could be clothed with the strength of their God, they had to be stripped of their own strength. Before they would even look to Him, they had to be cleared of looking to themselves and to others. They had to be broken. That is the economy of God for you and I understanding the new covenant. And why is that? It's because you and I, in our pride, look to ourselves and to others first. We do it. I'll be honest with you. We were talking with our men this, this Tuesday. Our, our goal is to look to God for our need. And I use this example. I need to be loved. Don't you? But all too often what I find myself doing is looking to Janet to meet my need for love. I then try to make her to be God to me. Because only God is agape, right? It says that in First John 4. Can you imagine this? I've got her on a treadmill of trying to be God. Burn her out. And my call from God is to look to Him to meet my need for love. Now, hopefully, He'll use Janet, you know, rather than Robert, to meet my need for love. I would prefer that anyway. But the choice is His. And that's how you and I are to respond to life. James Means wrote this in a book called A Tearful Celebration. In God's reckoning, to descend is the path to ascent. To suffer is to find freedom from suffering. To taste darkness is to approach eternal light. To become weak is to become strong. Each agonizing moment that I experience is essential to my life or God would not allow it. That's great comfort, isn't it? 
To be counted worthy of suffering is to enter into an entirely new realm of spiritual experience because my suffering is instrumental, not accidental, to the purposes of a loving God. End quote. That's awesome. So what is it that you're going through? Have you lost your health? Maybe you've lost a job. And maybe you're losing a loved one. Maybe you're in the middle of a stormy, stormy marriage. Maybe you've lost a marriage. Our God has allowed whatever has come into your life. Our God would do that? Well, He won't cause a marriage to break up. But in His sovereignty, He'll allow it and then He'll use it. Our God does not cause sin, but He'll use it to bring you to Himself. My prayer for you is this. He must break us because there's too much of us. I pray you'd allow Him to empty you so that you could run to Him who wants to be your everything. I have a... um, illustration that I want to share with you as we close this up. I shared this with you about a year ago, but humanity doesn't just receive something and say, there, I've learned it for the rest of my life, right? At least, I don't. Do any of you? If you think you do, I'd love to talk to you sometime. (laughs) This is a little poem written by B.B. Cornwall called The Vessel. And this is John chapter 6. It really is. This is New Covenant Economy. I pray you'd hear it. The Master, he's searching for a vessel to use. Before him are many. Which one will he choose? A lot of vessels. Don't you want to be used? Listen. Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value. I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest, and for someone like you, Master, gold would be best. Pick me, Master, I I always do it right. The Master passed on with no word at all. He looked at a silver urn that was grand and tall. I'll serve you, dear Master, I'll pour out your wine, I'll be on your table whenever you dine. My lines are so graceful and my carving so true. My silver will always compliment you. I'll make you look good, Lord. But unheeding the master, he passed on to the brass. Wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel. I, I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. No, no, look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride. And I'm sure that I'll be happy in your house to abide. And the master came next to a vessel of wood. Polished and carved, it solidly stood. 
You may use me, dearest master, the wooden bowl said, but uh, I'd rather you use me for fruit, not for bread. Ah, but then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill and to use. But the master, he said, Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend it. I will use it. I will make it all mine. I need not that vessel with pride of itself, nor that one that is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor that one that is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor one that displays his content so proud, nor the one who thinks he can do things just right. I just need this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and my might. So gently he lifted that vessel of clay and he mended it and cleansed it and filled it that day. And then he spoke to it kindly. There's work you must do. Just simply pour out to others as I pour into you. That is the glorious, glorious message of the new covenant. It is not what you do for him, but it is what he does through you. As you claim your dependence upon him and present yourself to him as a living sacrifice. May we be those broken and empty vessels. Our Father, thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you that you love us enough to strip us and empty us of all of our resources so that we will trust but you. Thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. Thank you that the issue does not rest upon us, but upon you. Thank you for understanding in what Jesus meant when he said, I will give you rest. But the issue is on what you do. And as we depend upon you, there is so much you can accomplish in us. Thank you for your grace. For your gentleness and your patience to teach us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you. And may you know his peace.